Worldwide, health professionals are taught standards of care that have been established in high-income countries, where access to diagnostic instruments, medications, and staff is assumed. In more precarious settings, evidence-based protocols may have little relevance to real clinical practice. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Yogesh Jain, a public health physician at Yaniswastha Sayug People's Health Support Group in India. As part of the journal's case studies and social medicine series, Dr. Jane has co-authored a perspective article on democratizing the production of evidence. Dr. Jane, in your perspective article, you describe the case of a patient who was seen at your hospital in rural India with symptoms consistent with ischemic stroke. What kind of evidence did clinicians have to go on when they were deciding how to treat this patient? The evidence that the uh, physicians wanted to base their clinical decisions were first whether this person had a stroke which was ischemic or non-ischemic or hemorrhagic in that sense. And because this patient came in good time to get thrombolytic therapy, which was within four hours of, after getting a stroke. And the second thing was they wanted to know whether one of the cheap thrombolytics which is available in easily, like streptokinase, which is otherwise used in coronary artery disease, whether that could also be used in the case of an ischemic stroke. And we were in a situation where we did not have a CT scan on site for, to do an imaging of the brain, and thus this patient would have to be moved to a hospital an imaging center far away from the, where the care was being provided into another city where CT scans was, were available. So these were the essential two bits of information that, uh, for which evidence was necessary whether one could give a thrombolytic therapy in the absence of a CT imaging, purely based on clinical evidence. So your example in the article, and as you were discussing, is stroke. Beyond stroke, what other cases do you see where the lack of evidence on feasible treatments is a barrier to your providing adequate care? Working in rural India, particularly among the poor, one finds any number of situations where clinical evidence is not available which is well-researched and a guidance for that is not available for us. For example, we don't know what are the protocols for treating anti-snake venom with any improvements that have happened in how anti-venoms have to be given before envenomation but after being bitten. Secondly, we don't know, for example, how should tuberculosis be treated when the people with extreme degrees of undernutrition like BMIs of 15, 14, 13, which are commonplace in rural India, when they present together, how should the nutrition be managed uh, along with treatment of tuberculosis with the anti-tubercular drugs? And similarly, there are things like we have a lot of lean diabetes in our area, diabetes which is happening among the non-obese or um, even among the undernourished ones, and what should be the dietary management as well as the anti-diabetic treatment that should be given to them. There's no guidance that is available for large numbers of physicians who get these problems every year. So you say in your article that democratizing evidence production involves changing the structure of medical research to produce evidence that's more broadly applicable to the majority of the world's population. So what would a research program that takes into account the needs of people in low-resource settings actually look like? I would say that in one line, it would be that equity has to be underpinned to the entire process of research and generation of evidence. And that would translate into what type of research questions should be handled, which the evidence has to be generated in a specific context. 
And in this case, the context of the largest number of people in the world, rather than only those who stay in big cities or in, on the, or in the Western world. Secondly, so what research question would be important? The second would be who does it? Usually we know that the capacity of people to do research of a particular grade is limited in certain situations. So we need to build up that capacity to do research in areas where questions of the poor are commonplace and they are also best equipped to handle it, the answering of those questions. And finally, who's going to do this research? It has to be cooperation between the developed and the developing world and between people who get in experience and expertise from research institutions in the first world, collaborating with people and finally encouraging them to do research in low resource situations would be three ways in which I would say this way of getting democratizing evidence production would start. And how do you balance the need for this evidence that's applicable to the lower resource settings against efforts to implement structural changes that could improve people's access to high-quality health care in these areas? I would say that they both have to go hand-in-hand. Hand. While our efforts to change uh, structural inequities have to be continued, we at the same time have to realize that we need medical evidence based on good research done on contexts that are going to be the case for the next foreseeable future. And that level of guidance based on evidence has to be available for healthcare workers in the times to come while we handle the structural changes that have to happen. So you don't see it as maintaining a two-tier system? Well, in a sense, I would say that we need standards that should guide the care of people in different contexts. But I'm not advocating for continued presence of two standards, one lower standard and one higher standard. But yes, we know that even in high-resource areas, there are different standards depending upon what resources are available. Similarly, we would want those guidance available for healthcare workers in different areas, and for a certain time frame, it will be a double standard. I would say that if we are moving with the underpinning of equity in terms of first availability of evidence for the situation that people have in the low-resource situation, we would be doing our work and would not be accepting you know, poor standards for poor people. Finally, you describe in your article the need for global health partnerships between high-income and low-income countries. How can investigators ensure that the work they do remains accountable to the interests of these marginalized communities? I would say for that also, we need to first prioritize question wherein the people who present the interest of the poorest have a say in determining the research question that should be taken on. Research sponsors and funders should recognize the importance of these questions and should take a positive stand in taking those questions whose uh, implications, answers to who, which would imply applicability to a larger number of people than to a very select few people in a developed world. And then they should specifically fund care, which, is, which should be for such questions. At the same time, research organizations in low-income countries also should first try to find out questions that are important to their own countries the third would be that the research sponsor should also try to build in capacity of research capability among institutions and among researchers in low-income countries. And finally, whenever collaborative work is done between countries which are high-resourced and low-income countries, and I would say a primacy be given to the researchers from the low-income countries. Thank you, Dr. Jane.